excuse me. <clears throat> we had some leftover questions. Uh, hold on one sec. Right. Uh, man standing up. <clears throat> so maybe it was kind of timely with uh, things that everybody was saying, especially after the uh, therapist here, what she was saying about the people at the bottomless pit. So I was thinking about that myself and being a veteran and thinking about veterans' issues and um, people that lose limbs, whatnot. It's a wound. I think of this bottomless pit myself and the five A's that I didn't get trying to figure that out and feeling this wound. And David talks about in his books that we have to grieve that. But then I thought about what this lady said over here about how it's a muscle, that these are muscles that we have that we were endowed with, I think David said. That muscle is there. And there is part that we have to grieve, but if we just do it through a grieving process, we're not developing that muscle. And this is my own experience that I'm thinking about. And that what I want to do, just like those veterans, where they're grieving that loss of their limb, they get something and they've grieved that part, but they get that prosthetic. And they're finally getting to the point where that moderate help that they get from the world isn't always somebody else picking them up. That they've developed their own muscle that's strong enough to care for themselves. And then it emanates from that center circle to the rest of the world and to yourself. So that was my observation. Thank you, David. Thank you, and I appreciate your bringing that up. So let's um, just say a word about the grief. Freud invented the word grief work. And one way to build the muscle that will reinstall and fully activate those uh, five A's that are in us that want to be directed toward ourselves when we noticed that they weren't forthcoming from the people we were born to expect them from, namely our parents. If they didn't come through with one or more of these, that would be experienced as a loss, not just a fact. Remember the poem, a loss of something ever felt I. A loss of something. A mourner walked among the children. So grief work, mourning, the loss of what we instinctively knew we were supposed to be getting. Those five A's. The way to work with the loss <clears throat> is... Grieving, as he just brought up. Most simply, that will be mainly sadness. I'm sad about what I missed out on. I'm angry at those who did not come through. And I am afraid that no one will ever make up for it. 
So how do we do the grieving, which helps us release ourselves from the bottomless pit? We let ourselves be sad about what happened. This will take some remembering of what happened. Although, as I said before the break, sometimes things, sometimes we're not ready to remember. But we can certainly be sad about any recollection of a time when our needs were not met. Putting the experience of what was missing into sadness, anger, and fear, the three components of grief, places them exactly where the healing can happen. And these three, as we go through them over and over again, all through life, it's a lifelong work. Even only yesterday, you might have realized something that didn't come through in childhood and instead of blaming your parents, you just let yourself be sad about it. You're angry that it didn't happen, but you're no longer angry at them. And you're afraid you may never find it again, but you're going to keep yourself on the path of openness to relating to others. When you go this way in the grief, it leads to a letting go. Letting go of what? Of blame of our parents. Of holding a grudge toward them and of any need to retaliate This letting go of blame, grudge, and the need to retaliate has a word attached to it. It's called forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean excusing them for their abuses or deficiencies. It's simply letting go of blame, grudge, and retaliation. That's, that's, that makes for forgiveness. So I'm going into the grief in order to get to the forgiveness. And it's the forgiveness that works in the direction of the bottomless pit so that it's no longer so bottomless. So now we've come to yet another way in which we work with our original stuff. One word about the retaliation. Most of us would probably not think of retaliating against our actual parents now that we are adults. We're still going to be kindly toward them. No. The trickster ego takes that retaliation out on our partner. I've seen it happen in my own relationship. And I apologized when I realized it. 
I was thinking of my ex-wife one morning. I woke up and I was for some reason thinking about her. And in my mind, I used the word mommy. I thought, David, that's not her name. (laughs) That's when I got it. I said, oh, I've really made them. It's just one thing. It's just one archetype. Wife, mother, it's all one. And I guess I must have been trying to get back at her, get back at mother through her. So be careful about how the retaliation works. And certainly apologize if you notice yourself doing it. Okay, we had some other questions. Oh, any, and also any questions on this? So in working with clients, I'm always going to tell me about how, how you're sad about what didn't happen, how you're angry that it didn't happen, and how you're afraid that it never will happen. Uh, I'm sad that it didn't happen. I'm angry. I'm sad that it didn't happen. I'm angry at those who made it not happen. I'm afraid it never will happen. Do you, are you hearing an echo? Um, is Kevin here? Okay. Way in the back, could you ask somebody to come in and check the... Oh, okay. All right. Questions about this or about any of the other? I want to get the leftover questions also. So right here first. Yeah, no, this woman on the floor. Yeah. Hi. So I wanted to ask about how the grief work process connects to the five A's and the opposite of those five A's. So if you're going through a grief process, does that connect to um, you know, acting in a way that's controlling or uh, not giving attention? You mean if you still have grief that you're not expressing? Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. The sadness turns into depression the unattended sadness turns to depression or what might be called he's in a bad mood. The anger turns toward bitterness and the fear turns toward phobia about closeness, which we're going to talk about more shortly. So that grief wants to come out When we prevent it from coming out, it, shall we say, um, goes to its dark side. Instead of just being the pure sadness, a very legitimate human feeling, it just kind of moves in the direction of bad mood, depression, and so forth. That was a good question that you brought up. So this poem might also express it, also by Emily Dickinson. A great hope fell. You heard no noise. The ruin was within. 
Oh, cunning wreck that told no tale and let no witness in, a not admitting of the wound until it grew so wide that all my life had entered it and there was room beside. So she's saying, I, when I squelched these feelings, they turned, they, they made this wound so big that everything else went into the wound rather than I work through the wound out into my big life. Instead, my big life folded into a not admitting of the wound is the equivalent of a not being willing to do the grief work. Especially hard for men because we're, uh, we're easier with the anger part and we have received many messages starting in childhood about big boys don't cry and they're certainly never afraid. So that would mean you didn't get permission for the full range of human feeling. You only got permission for the anger. Imagine being in a relationship with somebody who comes in with that disability. The only feeling he can express fully and clearly is anger. That will certainly become a problem after a while. Um, One last thing is regarding this retaliation part. Um, This is a quote from Shakespeare from Troilus and Cressida. It's just one line, but it says it all. The hope for revenge shall hide our inward woe. Get it? When I hope for revenge, I cover up the internal grief. The hope for revenge shall hide our inward woe. Perfectly expressed. That's exactly what happens. And that's probably the purpose of retaliation in a relationship. I picked up on this again and again with couples. So now I'm even asking that question occasionally. Were you trying to get back at her by doing that? And usually people are very honest. They say, yeah, maybe that is what I was doing. You have to ask yourself, in your relationship, have you ever vowed never to retaliate? No matter what happens between us, I won't go there. I'll go to dialogue. I'll go to ouch. I'll go to, we've got a problem, let's work it out. But I won't go to get back at you. Because that doesn't go with loving kindness. Uh, Okay, we had another question. Was there someone right here? Okay, right here with the college uh, sweatshirt. <clears throat> it 
So I've been thinking about a lot of these in the context of the individual. And if I took one of those concentric circles and applied it one meter out and then looked at, I guess, particularly our politics at the time, if you were to advise like, a practitioner in the political electoral arena about how they could go about helping groups of people work through the grieving process and work through you know, the fear, the sadness, the anger, all that stuff, and get rid of, you know, pretty much achieve forgiveness. How would you attempt to advise that person? I guess it would be the same as <clears throat> the topic of the holding environment. Like, you uh, place yourself or try to create a... Uh, a place that holds the grief uh, regarding the um, the um, veterans, for instance. Uh, I found this very interesting that the uh, Knights of Columbus since World War II offer the veterans when they leave the leave combat a trip to Lourdes yeah you can go there and you can just be with the mother energy with the healing waters whether or not you're a believer and there's something about being there that allows that grief to come up safely they even meet their and have been meeting there once a year, veterans from all over the world, to have their annual conference. Why go there? Because the answer would be, there's something about going to the mother energy of nurturance that uh, lets that grief arise. In fact, one of the titles of Mary is the sorrowful mother. So um, it would have something to do with how to create that kind of a atmosphere where it's okay to grieve here. Uh, somebody else? Somebody else had a question? Oh, right here. So I wanted to go back to a comment you made before about relationships. And when you, I read your book, it was something that gave me pause also. So I think it's probably good that I asked the question. Yeah. So I'm one of those people who did not get the five A's when I was young. And certainly I have noticed in my relationships the capacity for the bottomless pit in me, um, as well as sort of how my relationships have gone. And um, the part when you were saying about how the person you're in the relationship with actually is an unhealthy person. The part that gave me pause is that there can then be a lot of judgment in that for both yourself and the other person. So in other words, I can judge myself that I only pick unhealthy people or I can judge the other person as, well, if you're with me, you must be unhealthy. <laughs> and there's a judgment piece to that. And I found that now that I'm a little bit more aware of what 
sort of transpired for myself, um, that when I've been in relationship recently with um, a person who went through the same thing, that I think that we chose each other because we recognized something there. Not to be unhealthy necessarily, but because we, there was a comfort level. Um, and I'm wondering then how you talk about working when you are in a relationship without saying, well, clearly you can't, we can't be together because we're both unhealthy and therefore, uh, you know, I'm just trying to get to the piece of that. I guess you'd say something like, um, it's clear that we have things to work on and I think our relationship can only work if we do this work together. So, you know, are you willing to go to couples counseling and or and or individual and try to work through things? It would be a rare couple that would not need some type of counseling in the course of the entire relationship because we all come in with so many wounds and most of us have never really attended to them. That's part of what we're doing here. We're trying to identify what some of these wounds might be and look for ways to work with them. One of the ways to work with them spiritually is the loving-kindness practice. Another way, psychologically, is grieving and the letting go that uh, releases you finally from your parents' grip. Uh, Not that they're gripping you, but you have allowed them to continue to be more important in your life choices than they really are cut out to be. Reminds me of Milarepa, one of the uh, one of the uh, uh, teachers in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, who says. Leaving home is half the Dharma. And most of us have never left home because we're still doing things that were originally geared to pleasing our parents or we're still doing things in reaction to how our parents treated us or we're still doing things that show that we're not fully released from the original parent-child arrangement. But we're not going to give up hope because there are many ways to work with this, some of which we're talking about today. Who's somebody? Oh, right here. My question has to do with um, this grief work. Can you hold it a little closer? Yeah. Um, So my question has to do with this grief work. Um, How how do you do it safely when you're in a relationship with another person and these feelings that come up are so big and so compelling and they blind 
they are so blinding that I, I don't even know when it's the other person or if it's my mother and the, the childhood that was so lacking in those five A's. And I can't see it. I can't see it sometimes. And, and it becomes, it's becoming, it can become damaging to the relationship. Right, like because how do you then allow for this grief to come up in a way in a way that is not going to damage the relationship? Um, yeah. Okay, thank you, and that's a very good question. Uh, what popped into my mind was a scene from the original Japanese film, The Seven Samurai. And in this film, the youngest of the samurai, um, who's kind of a, also a humorous character, um, has run into a burning building and saved a little toddler boy. And he runs out of the building and out into a safe place. And then he holds the baby and looks at him and says, oh, I was this baby. This is what happened to me. And it's such a beautiful moment because he suddenly recognizes that somebody rescued him also that there was some terrible thing that happened and somebody, somebody liberated him from it. So when, and, and this all happened in a very dramatic moment in the film. So when something feels very big and dramatic, as you just described, you will always now take it as indicating it must have something to do with childhood. The biggest mistake we make in a relationship is to imagine that the person that we're looking at is just that person. Actually, it's that person plus our parents right there behind them. And uh, we're missing the point that the more dramatic it is, the more connected it is to unfinished business from the past. And Freud, of course, called this transference that we transfer our um, feelings from our parents onto our partners. Transfer, Latin trans across fur carry as in ferry boat so we carry across the generation the feelings and unfinished business that we had with our parents and then we carefully look for the partner who will trigger all that unfinished business. 
And if perchance we don't find that person, we will carefully train him (laughs) to be that way. And, you know, it's ultimately healthy because, you know, your psyche wants to do the work and it looked for the person that would help you do the work. I think we can all agree with this one, that we definitely found somebody who <clears throat> triggered all the old stuff. <clears throat> and the interesting thing about triggers is that <clears throat> it brings up bigger feelings than fit the bill. That's how you know that the feelings that are coming up have a wider range than just what's happening here in the relationship. Good. Somebody else had a question? Right here. Uh, Regarding the the grief work, how how does one forgive... uh, an associate or a, a parent, for example, that is uh, profoundly evil and destructive. Well, remember that forgiveness does not mean excusing. It means that forgiveness is um, about ourselves. So let's make a distinction between, maybe this will help. Let's make a distinction between forgive and pardon. To pardon is to release the other from consequences to his or her choices or crimes or behaviors. So pardon is about the one who offended. Pardon has to do with the offender. And what you're doing in pardon is you're breaking the link between crime and punishment. So a judge can pardon. He can say, you committed the crime, but you weren't in your right mind or whatever, and so I'm not going to give you jail or fine. So he has basically exonerated you from the appropriate consequences. It's about the offender. But forgiving is letting go of the blame inside you, the grudge inside you, the retaliatory impulse inside you, It's not about the offender. It's about the offended. That's the difference. A judge can't forgive. He can only pardon. It's up to the family of the victim to forgive. Judge can't go there. 
So personally, uh, when you think of how your parents were towards you, and some of us had parents who were very abusive, some who were not so abusive, but certainly all of us had parents who were inadequate in some way. When we no longer blame them or blame the shape our life is in and say it's because of them, when we no longer hold on to a grudge against them, when we no longer try to retaliate toward them or their substitutes, we've become healthier adults. And we're working on that bottomless pit muscle. <clears throat> so regarding the Holocaust, it's unpardonable, but nothing is unforgivable. Because that, that's about me and my feeling toward it. Some people say, well, some things are unforgivable. What they really mean is some things are unpardonable. Other languages don't have this, have this distinction. They only have this word. But we have this distinction. So it's, it's, a, it's really important to see. Um, I've thought a lot about um, that idea of uh, the unpardonable <laughs> yeah. uh, and <clears throat> how to distinguish the unpardonable from the forgivable. Um, and I think that's difficult to do <laughs> unless one knows how to love oneself rightly and wants for myself, when I began my Buddhist practices, I became more codependent first when I first became them. I was like practice loving kindness everywhere and non-grasping. And, mm -hmm. and then as time went on, <clears throat> yeah. um, and only recently did this really hit home. And it was from reading an old book I read many years ago that I used in some of my own work by Kierkegaard, mm -hmm. Works of Love. And I'm reading that book and going, darn, this is, I'm not, this is really hard. Why is he so hard? I went back to the very first paragraph, and in the first sentence, it said, dear reader, um, it's a foregone conclusion that before you enter this work, you already love yourself rightly. And so that has caused me to begin a deep exploration of what does that mean? And it took me into, the, into grief, mm -hmm. you know, and just kind of weaving in, in and out of that. And there are things in my family that I still am not quite sure, are they unpardonable? Or, or do we, what do you pardon? And how do you think we distinguish those things? Uh, please. Okay. So it's okay to say it was inexcusable. <clears throat> it was unpardonable. 
but I no longer want to carry around the blame because I've come to love myself and I know that this is poison. I don't want to be holding a grudge because this is poison. I don't want to be retaliatory. I have become more careful about what I hold inside. Just as I become more careful about the food, I want to eat the, let's say I want to eat organic food, not junk food. This is psychological junk food, blame, grudge, retaliation. I, I don't want to carry that around. I want to do the kind of work that just lets it disappear on its own. You can't force it to disappear. Oh, that's another important distinction. You can make yourself pardon, but you can't make yourself forgive. You can say, okay, you no longer owe that to me. No problem. But you can't make yourself forgive. The path to forgive is the grief. It'll happen automatically when you, instead of going to blame, you go to sadness. Instead of going to retaliation, you go to healthy anger. Instead of going to uh, holding a grudge, you confront the fear that you've carried inside for all these years. What fear will that be? Because I did want to go to this. It will take two basic forms. Sometimes we fear that someone will go away. That's the fear of being abandoned. And sometimes we fear that someone will get too close. That's the fear of engulfment or being smothered. Both obviously go back to childhood where we might have been abandoned or been engulfed. And this created a physical fear and carefulness that we don't let people get close to us and care about them so strongly that if they did leave us, we would feel totally bereft. That we would fall apart. That we would not be able to survive without them. So something in you knows that that might happen. So you might unbeknownst to yourself, secretly, not be allowing someone to become so important to you that their abandonment would matter. Or you might just not want someone to get really close to you because you're afraid that you will thereby lose your freedom. Ultimately, it's not really about losing your freedom or surviving. It's more about um, revisiting the original experience of it, which happened when you were so young that you didn't know how to handle it. 
you haven't quite believed yet that you're strong enough now to handle it. If someone abandons you, you won't fall apart. You will cry. You will be sad. You will uh, be kicking and screaming, whatever. But eventually, you will right yourself. You will come back to your homeostatic position. If someone tries to engulf you, tries to get too close, you will do what you've always done, which is say, back off. When you get close like that, I get scared. Please don't get that close. I want to be in relationship with you. But when you come across with that kind of neediness and grasping of me, I get very very, uh, jittery. So let's work something out. And ultimately, both of these are fears of love. Why? Because love just automatically means that someone will become so important that if you were abandoned, it will matter. Or another way of saying it is, in love, one of the givens would be I am going to let myself be vulnerable to how terrible it will feel if I'm abandoned. And I will let myself be vulnerable to how scary it feels to let someone get really close. Then it's no longer about freedom or survival. They were what fooled us all along. We thought, oh, I don't want to lose my freedom. Oh, I will fall apart. I will die if I don't have this person. Actually, it was never about that. What it was about was going back to the feeling of powerlessness that we felt originally and that we imagine we will feel again when either of these happens. But in reality, if someone abandons us, once we have worked with grief enough, we will say, but I do have something in my toolkit that I will use when someone abandons me. It's called grief. I will be sad that you left. I will be angry that you left. I will be afraid I never, will never have you back. And I will do that over and over and over until... I let go of blaming you, holding a grudge against you, or trying to retaliate. And if you get too close, I won't even have to go to the grief. I have become assertive enough so that I will speak up and say, please back off. With assertiveness in my toolkit, I no longer have to fear engulfment as much. With grief in my toolkit, I no longer have to fear abandonment as much. There is no human living without some sense of abandonment or engulfment. It's just the nature of human interaction. You have to ask yourself, which one of these two is the one that affects me the most? In most couples, each one has one or both of these fears, but usually one of the fears predominates. So you might have a couple in which one fear is abandonment, the other fear is engulfment. Well, when I fear abandonment, that's going to make me 
cling even more to you, and you're the one who fears that kind of closeness. So I've got a problem. (laughs) When I'm this way, I'm going to be distant in so many ways, I'm going to activate your abandonment fears. Or another way of saying it is, we found just the right person to help us do our work. Why we're here, to do this work, so that we can clear at least enough of the field of wounds so that we'll be able to play baseball there. That we'll be able to have uh, an experience that includes uh, continual interaction but has a, a joyous feeling to it. That can't happen when uh, we don't have it in us yet to do the grief work and we can't speak up for ourselves. Another way to love yourself, assertiveness. Um, Okay, but let's get someone who hasn't asked yet. So right here with the red shirt. Uh, so my question is, you know, you've brought up a couple instances now where the grieving process is a solution with fear and then, you know, holding on to a lot of anger when you're unable to forgive. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of surprised when you mentioned the grieving process as the solution. I thought you were going to mention uh, the five A's or, or, or rather learning how to extend love from ourselves to another and, and so forth. I find it hard to both stand up for myself and also allow myself to grieve like within the context of a relationship almost as difficult as like just letting go like I find it hard just to just do that um, and I've often found that like a vehicle to help me in that is learning how to love myself or love another um, and so I'm not sure if that question makes sense but I was hoping if you could speak to that okay I think what helps a lot is practice like with a spiritual practice. Um, just practicing grief on a daily basis, and it's, no one would deny that we get reasons to grieve every single day simply by watching the news. So hurricane and political candidates <laughs> and the things they say and et cetera, and the state of the world. Um, just to even take a minute and say, let's say you're looking at the, well, I watched the news last night, I saw the hurricane. Let's use that example. And I didn't do this, but I could have done this. I'm, I want to uh, let myself feel sad for What's happening to the people in Florida? Just that simple statement kind of places you in the grief response instead of what I was actually doing, which was one, oh, that's really a strong hurricane. 
in Connecticut, we didn't have those kind of hurricanes. That's what I thought of. That doesn't go anywhere. It's just a little memory. But if I had let myself say, oh, I, I want to feel sad for the people who are having to endure this. So that would be one example. In a relationship, when you notice, for instance, that since relationships go through phases, so let's use a simple example. It's certainly true, and studies done with California couples have shown that they go through three phases in a relationship. Of course, romance, which yields to phase two, conflict, which yields to phase three. Some go to separation. That would be three out of four. And some go to work out the conflicts so that you make a true commitment. What is a commitment? A willingness to work through conflicts and to keep the agreements that have come from the working through. So we have a conflict, then we make an agreement to do things differently. I've done two things. One, I've looked at the conflict, I've tried to address it, process the feelings that go with it, and then come up with some type of change. When I'm willing to work on the conflict and follow the agreement that came from the resolution of the contract of the conflict, those two together are called commitment. So three phases, romance, conflict, commitment. And from my point of view, marriage, marriage for our parents or grandparents took place within the romance. They were still romantically connected at the altar. Very dangerous. <laughs> Where you want your marriage is at the commitment. We've worked out a million things. Now we can get married. That's what it should sound like. Not, oh, we're so in love, we should get married. So, so anyway, when you notice that now we're ha starting to have more arguments, together you would grieve, oh, I guess we came to the end of the romantic phase. Let's grieve that. I'm sad that we came to the end. I'm angry that we came to the end. I'm afraid we'll never restore ourselves to it. Of course, you can restore yourself to it by having romantic times together or dates or weekends and so forth. But there's no way to avoid conflicts. We have a conflict that we can't work through. We take that to the grief. Instead of what's wrong with you, why can't you work it out? It's 
uh, I'm sad that we can't work this out. Let's be sad together. So that's what I mean by practice. Make sense? Uh, Right here. Um, I was hoping you can expand more on um, grief and uh, assertiveness as antidotes for those two fear-based engulfment and um, uh, abandonment. So if the antidote to abandonment is really grief and the antidote to engulfment is assertiveness, it seems like the one who's supposed to be as assertive is putting themselves in a position to request some sort of behavior or outcome from the other, whereas the previous is all internal. And I'm wondering if that sets up some sort of uneven bind or some sort of condition that sets the, the, the engulfment person up for, for disempowerment. So if I'm making a, an assertive request of my partner to back off and they don't, and that's what, what else do I have? Does that make sense? You mean you, you might say this and then the partner doesn't go along with it? Well, I'm saying that it, grief is <clears throat> all about internal work with the self. I, I don't need another to, to work my grief. Whereas in the assertiveness, or at least maybe it's only the example you gave, was that you, know, you make an assertive request of your partner, hey, I'm feeling engulfed, give me space. But then that sets that person up for being at the whim of whether that person is able to give space or not. With the assertiveness would be not only the statements, but a follow-up with some type of action. Like, I can't be with you right now, so I'm going to my room or out, but let's revisit this. It wouldn't be just speaking up. You might have to do something to protect your safety and security. So then can you talk more about what that self-soothing thing is for the one who has fear of engulfment? That I now... Through through assertiveness, anyway. Yeah, that I now have become strong enough to speak up when people get too close for comfort, and I'm doing it in a respectful way, and I'm not running away, but I am asking for a timeout. When you trust that you have all that going for you now, you will be less and less afraid that someone will smother you because you found ways to prevent that from happening. And gradually the other person gets it. Oh, you have to get close in just this way. I had this experience this past weekend because my granddaughter loves to be up on my shoulders and age two. And then I was visiting my uh, nephew and his son is age two. So I put him up on my shoulders and he screamed bloody murder. My brother said, he's afraid of being on people's shoulders. So, of course, I took him right off, and I was just hugging him. And, okay, I get it. 
Some people like this and other people don't like this. So I have to be respectful. So that would be the, that would be what the person on this side, the one who <clears throat> is overly engulfing, <clears throat> would eventually get. Oh, with this partner, I can't get this close. At least not right now. But maybe we could negotiate that we can get safely close. That would be happening in this realm. We have a conflict. I want more closeness than you're willing to offer. Let's work it out and come up with some type of plan that lets you feel safe and lets me feel nurtured. How do we do this? It would be said with the same style as that woman on the GPS who says, reconfiguring. (laughs) She doesn't say, you weren't listening, you're all messed up. You shouldn't even be driving. Why don't you get an Uber? (laughs) She doesn't say that. She just says, reconfiguring. With no blame. So that's what it would sound like. Uh, Right here? Yeah, right. No, right here. You mentioned that we tend to seek partners. We'll make this the last question, but we'll have more questions when we start after after lunch. A little louder. Is it on? So you you mentioned that we tend to seek partners that help us do the work we need to do. And just thinking about the abandonment and someone who perhaps continues to seek partners who they know will, uh, it'll result in another feeling of abandonment. Do you have any recommendations for how to break that cycle? The cycle of... um of continuing to seek a partner that oh yeah we'll can we'll continue do the same stay in the pattern right i'm always going to be looking for someone who eventually will not want me so that would be your first statement i guess i'm looking for someone who will not want me therefore i'm sad you know that's where you would take you that that's what would take you into the grief so the state of the art work with that would be one being sad about the condition that you're in secondly going to the kind of therapy that would help you work through your compulsion toward that pattern. Something in me is doing this. It can't be just a coincidence that one after another, all the partners are like this. What is it in me 
that is still unresolved and puts myself into this position. And usually, in order to do that, we would need some kind of help. But just being able to acknowledge it as you just did, I think is a very first uh, important step. Because instead of saying, um, most people are just not very faithful, you're saying, there's something in me that looks for someone who um, stays in this particular pattern. Pattern would be, staying in a pattern would be the opposite of actual freedom. Your freedom is freedom from a pattern. So that you're inventing your life circumstances rather than just following a pattern that has been established. Pattern usually going all the way back to our early years. Okay. Way in the back, you had an announcement? Yes, I think that does make sense. Thank you. <laughs> I'm only one page ahead on this from the rest of you. Um, let's talk about that after our break because it's a bigger question. But I just want to make one last comment, which is, our overall topic is loving kindness in relationships. And all of the things that we've been talking about fit into this because when we look at patterns, when we look at phases that we go through, when we work through conflicts, ultimately these are ways of loving because we're creating the condition of safety and security for ourselves and those we care about. That's the equivalent of loving ourselves and loving them. Or another way of saying it is the psychological work that we've heard so much about from the self-help movement all these years was always about how to love yourself and others. It was not just about how to release yourself from patterns, how to be less inhibited, how to have more fun in life, how to make better choices. I'm going to um, a different and I hope deeper place 
which is to connect all this to the experience of love. All right, so I'll come back. uh, You can come back by two. That's when we'll start again. But I'll come back at a quarter of two if you want me to sign any books. So see you soon. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.